Thanks for listening to The Derivative. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of RCM Alternatives, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past or potential profits, and listeners are reminded that managed futures, commodity trading, and other alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors. Welcome to The Derivative by RCM Alternatives, where we dive into what makes alternative investments go, analyze the strategies of unique hedge fund managers, and chat with interesting guests from across the investment world. It's insane. And I, there's so many scenarios that I could foresee that are so almost unheard of uh, in both directions that I don't think you can underestimate the volatility that could occur for the rest of the year, maybe even into next year. All right, welcome back to the derivative. This is your host Jeff Malik. Uh, we did a bit of a emergency pod recording today. Got some of the best energy guys we know on the line uh, here on the Zoom to get into crude prices going negative today. Uh, recording from my upstairs second room in my house due to coronavirus, and we've got uh, Emil Van Essen from his house down in Tennessee, and Brent Belot, who's out in uh, Oregon. For some reason, he can give us a little input into that. But uh, thanks for coming, guys, and thanks for being on the pod. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. So uh, a rather historic day today with uh, May crude futures went into negative territory and then massively into negative territory. So uh, Emil, maybe we'll start with you and just get your off-the-cuff uh, thoughts on, on what happened, what that was like. Then we can dig in a little more later. Well, I think most of the players were out on Friday. So you had a lot of physical guys left in the market and guys who are playing that game, the, uh, the physical market game. Uh, the exchange, I heard from some physical guys that there was a notice came out that you had to prove you had storage uh, to stay long in the market. Typically, a lot of physical guys will do an EFP in exchange for physical. They don't actually have to have the storage on hand to hold the long position, but I think they were forced out. And once that started, I think, you know, with over 100,000 open interest coming into today, uh, as some players, physical players had to exit, it just started a stampede. And of course, normally that would get arbed out, um, but without any storage and cushing, uh, the arb just, just wasn't really there. So kind of the uh, inverse of a short squeeze? Yeah, long squeeze. Exactly. <laughs> uh, Brent, what are your first thoughts on the day's action? Uh, Emil's thoughts are pretty much a mirror of mine where that it was the physical guys that really came in and hammered the market and uh, kind of got caught out. And it was CSO expert for calendar spread options as well. Um, so yes, this was really the last day where any financial players could have anything to do with the market. And uh, I think I think they got kind of pinched on that one when they down. Uh, volume had obviously already rolled to the next contract in June and July. Um, today was obviously a low volume day, but still to see negative screen prices was a pretty big shock for me. 
Yeah, first time in history. And so unpack that a little, what you guys mean by physical traders. So we're talking like the BPs and Exxons of the world or what? Yeah, yeah. those BP. ones, the guys who need it for refiners and also a lot of the trade shops as well, the Vital, Trafigura, Glencore, guys that really have actual barrels to move and need them uh, around the world. Emil, what were you saying? No, I was just saying the, the same thing. Uh, anybody who who's in the business of handling physical barrels typically has storage or that kind of thing. Uh, they can play it to the last minute. Generally, financial funds, things like that, who manage uh, futures are going to be out. Would have would have been out Friday. We were out Friday. And so that's when when was first notice days like in three more days. Yeah, it's well, it expires tomorrow. The contract expires tomorrow. Uh, so crude is kind of unique in that. Um, the notice happens after the last trading day. So you definitely do not want to be in unless you're a physical player in the last day or two. The, uh, and what, in a typical situation like this, the physical players would, if there was, as you were saying, the arbitrage, they would keep it on a tanker, put it in their own storage. So are we saying like all of those global storage pieces are full? What's, what's unique about Cushing is that it's, so landlocked and you can get to the Gulf Coast, but pretty much all of the arbitrage that'll happen is that is buying this future and just selling the next month or farther out. Um, if you think you could have bought today at minus 40 and sold next month at $21. So you know, that spread would have pretty much made up probably for four years of carrying tank costs, maybe a lot more in that regard. Yeah, and just to add to that, it, it, it's kind of an indication of how tight things are in Cushing uh, I understand there's about 7 million barrels of tankage coming off of maintenance in the next week or so. Uh, but clearly there was not any tankage available for arbitrage or somebody would have done it. I mean, there, there was an opportunity there. It just shows that all the tankage is booked and done for for the year. And well, at least for May. What uh, is there? Might be a different story. What's that uh, amount of tankage look like? How many millions of barrels are in Cushing? Uh, I I, yeah, it, Cushing has uh, the theoretical 90 million barrels is tank tops. Uh, they can get to about 81 or 82 percent of that. So count at the low 70s. And um, like there's like they're trying to take anything that's in maintenance or whatever. They're going to try to get it out of maintenance now and you know get it onto the market so I, I i would say mid 70s is is a good number of 70 million barrels yeah like 75 million barrels and that's what do we that's available what were we producing a day roughly in the u.s well we're more we're not what we're producing what we're building the cushing inventories are building at a pace of around 700 to 800,000 a day right now until no more so what let's what happens to that crew when they can't take it anymore? Are they going to like start burning it or they're the negative prices are implying they're paying people to take it away? Or was this more of just a microstructure thing? Like in the actual real world, are people paying people, other people to take barrels off their hands? Well, there is, there is a real problem right now, logistically. As storage gets full and refineries are cutting runs and maybe even shutting down, you get a real logistical problem with like you may not be able to put oil on a pipeline 
if there's no storage in between and the refinery is not taking it. So there could be a real logistical problem if, if there's no storage. And we're getting to the point where even if there is storage, people have booked it and they intend to use it and you can't, you can't find new storage. So uh, pipeline companies are saying you can't put oil on our pipeline unless you can prove that you got a place to put it afterwards, like when it, when it comes out of the pipeline. And so there, there's a lot of logistical problems that are building up. And this thing could be a real mess in the next month. That, that kind of Rent. goes, I wrote an article last week and it was talking about how a lot of these production cuts are already happening in the physical world because there's nowhere to put the oil. So why wouldn't OPEC and the rest of the world come out and tout these cuts that they've done and how great they are to support the oil price when in reality, half of these countries and even companies are being forced to cut them already just based off of price. So it was kind of a you know, chicken and egg. Like they've already cut a lot. They're already being forced to cut a lot. They may as well promote it as them cutting. Right. So the whole Saudi thing was more of a PR move, you're saying, OPEC? Yeah, absolutely. They were they were already running out of floating stores. So they chartered pretty much everything on the market in January, Feb, when, when things started, you know. And uh, they, they've just, they're pumping max they can. Everything's going into storage. And... Yeah, I think they were already getting forced to, to slow down just because they, they're running out of places to sell it. Yeah, what's it? It's funny. I, I was just going to say it's funny because there's an armada of BLCCs coming from Saudi Arabia right now. I think close to 20 BLCCs heading to the Gulf Coast. And one of the problems is, you know, the Saudis max production out for April, uh, April deliveries. They're sending all this crude, and I think a lot of people are backing out of the deals right now. Mm -hmm. And so the Saudis are saying, well, maybe we'll cut production actually uh, for late April because they just, I, I think yeah. there's no place to boil. So it's kind of, it, it's kind of an interesting predicament. And, and uh, Russia cutting two and a half million barrels, I have a lot of doubts. I mean, they have a lot of problems in Russia doing shut-ins, and I just don't think that they're going to accomplish that or even intend to accomplish it. It's just lip service. And by the way, I got to add Brent, I heard you're shooting the lights out in your fun recently. <laughs> so congratulations. On that. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Having a great March and having a good April so far. So hopefully we can keep it going. Past performance is not necessarily indicative, of <laughs> but we'll put the uh, terror sheet out on the show notes here for everybody. But so a few little definition pieces there. So BLCCs, what is that? Very large crude carrier. Oh, VLCC, got it. The ones that don't yeah, fit in the Panama Canal. Right, they're two million barrels, and then you have ultra, uh, ultra large crude carrier, which is three million barrels, and then the smaller carriers, which are a million barrels. And right now, the big issue is how many of these carriers are gonna be going into floating storage. Um, the Saudis were smart enough to book up, fix a lot of BLCCs at the beginning of this. So they made it basically really difficult for anybody else to do shipping because they quadrupled the shipping rates uh, for anybody wanting to fix a tanker. They got pretty lucky in that trade since they did the Saudi, Russia, OPEC fallout. That whole next week they booked every every BLCC that you said. <laughs> so. They weren't even thinking COVID or Corona. They just got lucky with the Russian Saudi spat. And 
unpack that a minute for me. So the Saudis are pumping oil like crazy. They've run out of places to put it on their physical land. So they go and book these carriers that are owned by whomever, shipping companies, MLPs and yeah. whatnot. And they're well, saying- Well, no, I, yeah, I wanna like say, I actually think they were way ahead of the curve because what they did is when they had this dispute with Russia, is they sent, um, is they took a lot of their storage and put it on VLCCs. They booked all the VLCCs, they jacked up the VLCC day rates, they got all their storage and made and essentially cleared room for future storage. By the way, everybody says this was a big feud between Russia and, and Saudi. I think this was the time they stopped feuding. They agreed on what they should do, which was, hey, we're the low cost producers. Why are we letting the high cost producers run us out of town? We should take a stand. And they, had, they couldn't exactly do it in such an obvious way. So they pretended it was a feud and they're killing the, the, the shale industry, at least temporarily. But what is, what's Russia's uh, cost of production compared with Saudi's? It's gotta well, be Saudi's obviously got the cheapest cost of production, but Russia's um, cash costs are pretty low too. So they can compete, I think, with, with anybody. And so you're saying they were kind of colluding behind the scenes to say, hey, let's fight the shale wars? Well, you either have to absorb the, um, you either have to, as OPEC plus, absorb the cuts, you know, okay, demand is down, we absorb it, or we say, no, we're going to keep producing because we're the low cost producer and let everybody else uh, see, see how well you can do with $10 oil. And now we're finding out. So essentially when they cut, when, when they force um, all the world's production in this situation, there's going to end up being a lot of shut-ins and some of those shut-ins won't come back and theirs will. I don't think Russia can afford to do a lot of shut-ins. So I think they're going to keep producing, probably only reduce minimally. I don't know if Brent, if you agree with that or not. But. Yeah, I do. And I, I think you, yeah, you're bringing up a great point with Russia and Saudi. Um, just getting tired of the U S growing at a million, you know, when they when all these companies come out and they tout their production up, 30% year on year and what their growth is going to be. Meanwhile, OPEC is still in the previous cut from what they did and they never got that market share back. So when you see stuff like that, it kind of, you kind of saw some dislocation about six to nine months ago where the Saudis were getting a little fed up with the U S continuing to grow, continuing to drill, continuing to dive into it. And I absolutely think you're right. They just decided enough's enough. And what's interesting is I think as you start to shut in production and have it, put it away it's a lot of times difficult to bring it back in a timely manner um, some of them are pressurized some of them are more expensive the wells are more expensive to bring back so i think this could end up in a scenario once once you have covid demand start to rebound hopefully here in the next month or two um, what happens is you'll see almost a snapback where opec will be in their production will be demanding way more and i think you'll see some big draws towards the back half of the year what uh, define for the listeners, viewers here, shut-ins? Uh, just either capping a well or closing, you know, kind of slowing it down. Putting so basically cutting production. Essentially. Yeah, just basically so, cutting out a well. Yeah, I mean, shutting down the well so it doesn't produce. Brent, I think you hit the nail on the head that what, what I could see happening here is uh, storage fills, logistics start uh, getting to be a problem. 
people are forced to shut in at any cost because otherwise the oil is going to spill out onto the ground if refineries are cutting you may actually see more shut-ins than than you need and so what then happens is all of a sudden you're not producing as much oil and maybe things relax a little bit demand comes up and you could see storage draining very quickly and yeah. maybe too quickly and prices could could uh, rebound back uh, dramatically after that yeah i think that that's absolutely correct i think this could be a, a fairly quick snapback and i even think today's move was bearish or it was i'm sorry it was really bullish believe it or not like emil said because when you go to minus $60 on that front spread right now between May and, and June, any single person is going to book as much storage as they can. So I had Cushing filling in my model early May. I think it could fill even faster than that as soon as they can start taking delivery of the barrels. So this could even be a almost speed up and shorten the time that it would take where we might have had four to five weeks of pain. Now it might just be two weeks of really, really bearish builds in, the, in Cushing and even the Gulf Coast. And then from there, it could just be off the races. So, And explain that dynamic a little bit. So I guess the two types of trade, when oil's in contango and oil's in backwardation. So, you know, either you want to sell it as quickly as possible or stick it in storage and sell it later, basically, depending on the curve. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And there's a lot of, this has been very profitable for, call it three or four months now. So this wouldn't, people wouldn't have been, it's almost impossible to find tank storage in Cushing up until, you know, probably six months ago. It was very, very expensive. So and yes. why, do, why doesn't Bezos or someone just come out and say, hey, I'm going to spend $2 billion and build all this storage? It's years of work or what, what's that look like? Um, it, yeah, it, 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 at a certain point, they probably would. It probably makes sense. You could probably lock in a pretty nice profit for it, but just by hedging on day one. I think just the ability to build permits, et cetera, is all very there. And for the most part, Cushing is becoming a byproduct than a pass-through anyways. Um, it's much more of the Gulf Coast is becoming the, the hub of oil these days in the U.S. And that's and, it, and the storage won't help anyway, because by the time they would construct storage, you wouldn't need it anymore. Yeah. You'd be in the down phase of the problem. So that's, right now, never I mean, people before. <laughs> yeah, true. But I, they built a lot of storage in the last three years. Um, so I think we built at least 100, 150 million barrels of storage in the last few years. So that's definitely helping the situation. There's some countries that are in much, um, much worse shape where they basically have production going on a pipeline, going to the coast, loading on ships. And if there's no ships and no storage at the end point, you just have to shut in the well. That's it. And what, so they'll shut it in, but it, don't they burn it in natural gas sometimes if they can't? It's cheaper to just burn the methane. Got it. Butane. It's, uh, so would, they're never going to burn the oil? No. I don't think you can do that. I think that's an environmental problem. But they flared that gas. I think flaring is going to come down quite a bit in the next couple of months. If they start shutting in wells, then uh, they're gonna, there's going to be less flaring. Actually, one of the uh, results of all this could be a shortage of that gas in 2021. So if they shut in a lot of wells after the Marcellus region has already been cutting back, uh, you and demand for that gas is increasing, not decreasing, you could actually see a shortage of that gas for next winter. And what would you say to people who are 
I haven't seen it yet on Twitter just because most people probably haven't read the headline yet, but people might be thinking, oh, this is global warming and, you know, fossil fuels lost, oil's negative, wind, solar, everyone won. What's your thoughts on that? It has nothing to do with one another? Well, my understanding yeah. is that the, uh, uh, the, the, the carbon footprint has gone down dramatically during the COVID. So yeah. maybe this is the solution to the problem. Maybe the solution isn't what people were looking for, but uh, certainly the carbon footprint has gone down. Um, I, I, I don't think, you know, I think in, in the long run, uh, oil is still the transportation fuel and will continue to be uh, for a long time. So I don't think we're going to get around that. Electric planes, right? Yeah, I wouldn't trust that. Yeah, it's a lot of really heavy. Um, <laughs> You've act, we've actually seen distillate demand still continue to be strong, kind of throughout the whole process, just from the amount of trucking that's going on from ships and uh, I'm sorry, from shipping, not from ships, from shipping um, in the U.S. And that's just trucks getting all the Amazon goods to where it needs to be. I think so. Yeah, every, every, it's been pretty wild. Yeah. That, gasoline so, at the time when it happened, gasoline cracks dropped by fifteen dollars, and heating oil cracks and distillate cracks were pretty much unchanged for most of most of Corona scare. And so, who's the big winners here? Like Southwest Airlines or someone, but probably people like that don't have the money to hedge right now. But it seems like people could be locking in once in a lifetime oil prices for their for their business for the foreseeable future. Right? Yeah. The problem is a they have no business. The airlines Big and B, they probably already hedged, so they're already long jet fuel, and they can't even use the hedges because they're not flying. So it's really a bad situation for the airlines. The real winners here are anyone who has the ability to store oil. So that's the real winners. There's yeah. some there's some very nice tanker storage plays out there. <laughs> the, yeah, like International Seaways, Euronav. Even product tankers, um, there's you know there's not enough space for product. Mm -hmm. They're storing it on tankers, and tankers, uh, product tankers are going into port, not being able to unload their their cargo. So um, yeah, tanker stocks are really looking to make a lot of money here, and then all the floating storage. And so, what does that look like on a price per barrel? Uh, like what what was storage in normal times say? two years ago in Cushing on a ship? And what is it today, do you think? I mean, for Cushing, I can tell you, you know, five years ago, it was probably 15 to 20 cents um, a spread between the spread. So 15 to 20 cents a month per barrel. And I, I think I saw one trade a couple months ago that was close to 70 cents. So I mean, it's just, you've, you've seen them really, really spike up. And that's, that's that trade. So if the contango is more than the storage per month you're winning on that trade yeah and then the but the incremental storage is uh, floating storage so like we said storage rates have gone for vlcc's to 150 to 200,000 a day so let's say at 200,000 a day that's six million dollars uh, a month for two million barrels so that's three dollars a month so you need a pretty big contango to pay for that but if it's at 60 like you can you can get a lot of room there right yeah, or if you can buy distressed barrels in like Midland or different places and pipe them to a port and put them on a on a VLCC, 
uh, and you know an old BLCC and maybe get a, a bit of a better rate for floating storage. Uh, that that's where the money is buying uh, distressed barrels, let's say at a discount. All right. Is there a website for that? Yeah, Bloomberg, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> That's call around business of like, hey, I've I've got somewhere to put it, and that's like what the Glencores of the world or whatever are operating in that space, likely. Yeah, sure. I mean, they're going to be they're going to be out there seeking barrels from Bakken or Midland or or what have you, seeing who has the biggest discounts. You know, they might be taking it to a location, uh, um, you know, for storage or maybe floating storage, but. I think all those opportunities are starting to run out. So I think I think the options are starting to get uh, get small. And also, I think um, a lot of the physical guys are having trouble just doing their business. And so sometimes finessing an arb like that is sort of something that gets forgotten in these difficult times. And they might have bigger issues of they're sitting on already bunch of barrels that they can't offload or something of that nature. Um, yeah, and we, we just had a, a bankruptcy or an impending fraud in the in the tanker market just, I think, this weekend in Singapore. So things like that um, can cause a big disruption. So let's take it back. If I'm just Joe Schmo slinging around crude oil futures in my interactive brokers account or whatnot like this is kind of like the people that got taken to the cleaner in the vix trade when all the etps blown out like if you don't know everything you guys are talking about you're at a huge disadvantage trading crude futures right yeah i think i think the cash markets and underlying fundamentals drive everything and we saw a lot of the cash markets really weaken up over the last couple of weeks to where everyone kind of thought that this was going to be a bloodbath into expiry just from a standpoint of no one's going to be there to buy it because no one has storage to the tune of what did it hit what was the low negative 60 today yeah yeah it was moving so fast my screen froze for about ten dollars and that's why you don't trade the front month unless you can take uh unless you can take delivery in the last couple of days what what did it settle at uh minus 37 in i think January, minus 37 63 yeah. there you go so what does that even so, look like? Do, do yeah, you think the clearing firms and these, Sorry, what does that even look like? Do you think the clearing firms and banks and everyone even has the ability to like plug that into their system and make good P&Ls? Highly unlikely. I mean, Emil can talk about this probably better than I can, but the, I don't think the option markets, most people's option and risk metrics probably crashed today. Luckily, options have expired on that. But I'm curious what will happen if they, if we go negative in a month where option futures are, and options are still pretty prevalent and high volume. Right. But I now mean, everybody's looking for it, so it probably won't happen. The other big yeah, thing is is USO. Uh, you know, there's been a flood of money into USO, and people don't realize that USO is getting eaten alive by the rolls in in WTI, and then you have a new group of funds that are shorting USO to take advantage of the little guys entering USO and getting getting eaten up. So that's in, an interesting trade too. In theory, you'd want to be short USO to capture that contango, right? Yeah, to capture the role because yeah. they're, well, right now they're 80% in the front month and 20% in the second month. 
but they're they definitely pay a high price for that role. Uh, yeah. we, June July spread is already five over five dollars. So what's it going to be when they roll again? And let's face it, everybody front runs their roles, so uh, they're kind of at a real disadvantage. And yeah, I wonder if there'll be any uh, ETF ETP big. Oh, I guess we would have seen it at the close already, but you know we didn't have a blow up like in the. Uh, VIX back. Well, that, that's also because that was the percentage. So I, I was having a talk with a friend today about that. And if you get oil down to a month that they're trading in, I would say if it hits $10, you should have nothing to do with the SO because there's a chance that if oil drops another seven, eight bucks, they're going to have what they had to do with the VIX, which was their forced liquidation if they close this below a certain you know, net asset value for it. So, right. Basically, the issuer at some point will say it's we'd rather not go out of business. We'd rather just shut this fund than give you yeah. exposure and risk our balance sheet. Which would be fun, which would be wild because it would basically be a sell on market. However many futures they have at that point. It'd be mm -hmm. Pretty crazy. And what yeah, it, like 150,000 futures. <laughs> and if that happened today and they had to do that on, on May, it probably would have been minus 200 oil. Wow. And what are you seeing in terms of like actual execution of trades in the different months? Is the liquidity and still there or has it been dried up a little during the crisis here? It, I think it's been pretty normal, pretty standard. Um, I haven't noticed any dip or slippage. Um, like I said, if you're trading May expiry right now, you know where the physical is going to go and you can probably take delivery. So that was pretty, pretty wide, but you shouldn't be in there anyways. Right. What were the spreads there? Probably like five bucks a tick or something. Yeah. I think when it, when it first gapped through, I, my CQG froze for literally three minutes on May futures and it was a $5 wide when I, when it came back. So I'm not sure what everyone else did. Unbelievable. So Emil, being I found a problem with liquidity. Just to add to your point, um, on liquidity, I found liquidity has dropped quite significantly. So, it's pretty hard to trade size on spreads and things like that. I mean, you're kind of relegated to doing like fives, tens, and twenties. You can't really do hundreds at a price anymore. You need a good uh, execution algorithm. I know some guys who can help you with that. Um, and Emil, being Chicago area, although not right now, but let's just talk for a second. Why? Like Chicago is probably going to be two dollars and eighty cents a gallon here for gas with negative crude. Like what, why is Chicago in particular always have such a huge disconnect with the actual gas price? Well, I think it's what they charge you. Um, you know, I, I mean, I think the gasoline, I mean, uh, New York Harbor is the, is, the, is the delivery point for gasoline futures but uh, how it heads out to the different areas from the refineries. Um, I, I think, you know, the prices you pay in Chicago are really just a Chicago markup. I'm sure they have the same thing in New York. Yeah. Big taxes as well. I think Chacago has about 60 cents in taxes on, tacked onto it. Federal, you know, state, everyone. So. Which to me, wouldn't this be a great time to throw on like a 10 cent a gallon infrastructure tax or something nobody's going to notice yeah no one notice right. well that's also that's also part of the game with gas stations so right like they get pricing immediately 
yet they take their time to, to deal with trying to get it to pass it on. Yeah, and so as soon as always, it goes up. There's always a spread there. When it goes up, you'll see it raise quick, but if it goes down, a little slow to get out there and change the price. Yeah, I remember back in like 07, I was arbing with my wife in my cars. I could sit there during the day and see crew go up eight bucks and be like, go fill up tonight. They're going to jack it tomorrow. Um, what else do I got here? So I think that's about it. I just wanted to get your guys' quick thoughts. What, are, what, uh, what else do you want to tell me? Anything? I think both of us, for how bearish this sounded for us, both see light at the end of the tunnel in the second half of the year. And I think as long as we're not stuck in quarantine through you know August, I think that the 29 million per day we've lost in demand should come back to at least a normal number, even if it's down four or five million. Um, we'll still be in a deficit and start drawing. And I don't think the back half of this year looks true too bearish oil. And I'm not as optimistic on that side. I think the shut-ins might balance the market, but I would say this, everybody is looking for storage to fill and some catastrophe to happen with prices. And I think when you actually get there, prices might go the opposite way. Right. So this is the rumor right now. And then when it, when we're there, it'll be sell the news. Yeah. Sell the rumor, buy the news in this case. Yeah. Everyone. So like I think I said, it might you, know, you said the spread between June and July is minus $5. I think you could make the case that we might fill storage this month and then no one's there to buy that, you know, indefinitely. And everyone who's longest has to exit. And so I think it'll be interesting so, to see what happens with June, July spread going into close. So May, June is negative 60. Yeah. Or was it some point today? And then June, July is ne only negative five. Yeah, only. <laughs> yeah, right. What's a normal spread there? 20 cents or something? Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe in extreme times you get to a dollar, but um, so, let's these talk. Prices what, are unheard of. Brent, you mentioned that negative 20 something million demand. What? What's that from? Just we're all, we're not driving, we're not flying. What are the main drivers of that? Yeah, mostly driving um, and flying pretty immaterial in the grand scheme of things, but it, it has having a significant impact on the jet market, but it's really just really consumer driving has been the big factor. India shutting down, um, you know, even China slowing as well. So you know, I think, yeah, I think 29 is probably right around where it is. And I think towards the second half of this year, you should be close to back to normal. Um, maybe if flying's down, that's fine. But I do think that trucking and, uh, trucking and, and driving logistically for people will, will be back up. Do you think there's permanent damage to like people's driving habits and whatnot? You think we'll see a little permanent demand? I think it's too early to tell that. I think you could make the case that um, work from home will have a more prevalent place in people's lives, but I still think that in the short term, people will be driving a lot more um, and, and have to do that. I think what will be fascinating and what will drive a lot of that is how fast people get back to work whether they are rehired or if we're just in a consumer led recession for the next seven to nine months. And what, and so this whole hey, talk, hey. sorry, go ahead, Emil. No, I was going to say that one of the fears is that, you know, maybe as we get into the summer, things start bouncing back slowly. Uh, people drive a little bit more, probably still not flying a lot. And then, uh, you know, the COVID comes back. 
So as people start mingling again, it starts spreading. And then next thing you know, we're in another lockdown and we're in the same position all over again. I think that's the fear. Um, and what is the, uh, I lost my train of thought, but t let's talk about the volatility for a second. So it sounds like everything you guys are saying, no matter which way it goes, it seems like for sure there's going to be more volatility in the oil markets for the foreseeable future as all this shakes out. Like what, what's the oil VIX equivalent today versus a year ago or whatnot? It, implied volatility is running, I don't know, between 100 and 250. Um, Which is like it, Bitcoin levels, right? It's insane. And I, there's so many scenarios that I could foresee that are so almost unheard of uh, in both directions that I, I don't think you can underestimate the volatility that could occur for the rest of the year, maybe even into next year. Yeah, I agree with that. Give, give me one or two of those wild foreseeing uh, possibilities. That uh, the possibility that I said, and I think Brent, you alluded to this too, was that you may force so many cuts because of prices going to zero that when things come back, you don't have enough oil anymore. And if you don't have enough oil, I mean, you could really run into problems and, and in the net gas side too. And you could see an unprecedented rally that would be more than a war scenario. Which is basically what we've just seen in reverse. Like now there's huge exactly. demand and we have no more oil because we just drained it so fast out of storage. Right. Yeah. It'll take time to start drilling again and fracking. There, there, there's, it's probably going to take six to 12 months to really get up to speed. And there could be a gap there where there's just not enough oil and, and storage starts draining, could get close to zero. I mean, it's, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but it's definitely a possibility. Yeah, and I definitely agree. It seems like those producers would prefer that, right? Like they'd rather be late than early, it seems. Maybe Russia and Saudi are planning on that. Yeah. And we've talked before, Emil, about the uh, big offshore rigs that were some millions of dollars a day just to keep them idle or, or to start them back up is not a, is not a, uh, something you take lightly like that's a huge undertaking right yeah like so shut-ins in some cases are very difficult and in places in some places shut-ins you'll never get the wells back so um you have to be in a position where you have no choice so if you have no storage if you have a shuttle tanker going from an offshore rig um uh, to, to an onshore terminal and there's no space left I mean, you may be forced to shut in that, that rig. Uh, onshore, I think it's the older wells they're going to have a problem with because I don't think they're going to have the pressure to bring them back. So they're going to be, um, you know, probably only going to be able to shut in wells that have been drilled and, you know, fracked in the last year or so. I mean, there's all kinds of problems, but there's nothing like uh, prices or negative prices or no storage to force that those shutters. yeah the uh and brent you were you were early what you was that end of february when you were like can crude go below 10 bucks i think or was it 15 bucks uh yeah it was 15 it was 15 it was it was right after the saudi uh russian opec fell out and 
like I said, the cash markets immediately priced a lot of that um, and just got hammered from day one. And I always thought that they're going to pump it to zero. And then coronavirus crept up as well. And what's interesting is the Saudi Russians killed oil price and Corona killed products. So, you know, before, before, um, you know, when it was the Saudi and Russians and the OPEC spat, they were just flooding it with, with oil. We were just going to fill up with oil. Refineries were still going to run. But when Corona knocked out all of the demand, everyone just kind of went, oh, my God, like now what? Because then refineries started cutting and it was a big domino effect of, uh, like I said, I think refinery margins dropped around $7 in the Gulf Coast. So they went from making a ton of money to making no money. And all of a sudden it was a big, big thing. So it, it needs to come from the top to the recovery, you need to have demand to pick up first and foremost. And if people get back to driving and having summer holiday drive around the States during driving season, I think, I think I'm with them. I think it could, it could be bullish. I did my part. We, uh, we were getting sick of quarantine here. So I packed up the family, put the paddle boards on top of the truck and we drove down to Kentucky to, uh, we like rented <laughs> some private camping space on a guy's land I right like on that. the Cumberland river. Uh, hiked around did some stuff we didn't see anybody and then we just slept in a tent packed up drove back so it, it was a little odd with the paddle boards and the bikes on the back people looking at us as we're driving down the road so uh hopefully Lori lightfoot doesn't arrest me for saying that but um yeah i think people are gonna even if it's something like that where you're not driving to a uh crowded place or whatnot um uh, and remind me of that timing so the russia saudi thing was End of Feb, mid Feb. When was no, that? it was March. I want to say I thought it was March eighth or March 9th, okay. around there. Well, it, it was yeah. kind of bang bang of like we're it doing was, it. Yeah, it was within the next week, I believe, if I recall correctly. It was they did that on a Friday. OPEC fell apart on a Friday. That Monday, oil was down ten dollars, and then I think it was Thursday or Friday was when the market really, really topped out and started realizing. Realize. Yeah. Um. All right. Uh, I think we're good. I think they're going to write chapters in textbooks in the near future on, right? This was a double whammy of the, like you're saying, the supply got spiked overnight and then the demand got ripped out overnight. So it's a classic supply demand issue. Not so classic, a not classic supply demand issue, both sides happening at the same time. What's interesting is that I think Trump will probably go down as the only president in history to want higher oil prices for Americans. <laughs> Right. And that's another thing. So let's last topic here of the, uh, right. A lot of people are like with all this, whatever we put in 2 trillion in stimulus, they're trying to do the trillion infrastructure plan, basically printing all this money, right? Everyone's like, Oh, there's going to be inflation, inflation, but the crude oil markets are saying deflation massively. So where do you guys land on that? I mean, we've kind of touched all around it of it switches quickly. It could be inflationary, but. You see, just from a from cheap... my standpoint, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was going to say, like, it seems like they're going to throw so much money at this problem and they're going to keep throwing money until they think they solve the problem. And there might be some very unintended consequences out of all this money. Um, how are they going to finance the debt? I mean, what, what does it mean when you have a problem that you just can't solve really by throwing money at it? So by the time the problem resolves itself on its own, all this money hits and strange things can happen. Well, you could argue that the whole oversupply was a result of throwing the money at the last crisis, right? And Absolutely. all the shale got cheap debt to build all their, uh, do the fracking. So 
All right, Brent. The fact, the fact remains that the cost to, to drill for energy in the world will forever be higher, at least until people can forget about this. But banks are not going to lend against proved reserves or anything they any new find. Um, the cost of capital will probably be higher, even though interest rates are probably 2% lower. Um, it's just going to be more difficult to drill for oil. And I think banks will require more hedging to give them lines of credit. Um, I think you'll see a lot of hedging next time we rally up just from there hasn't been enough bankruptcies yet in the shale play in my mind. And I think, I think the shale patch is in for a world, world of hurt before it becomes better. And you think that'll infect uh, the regional banks, JP Morgan, like everyone involved there? No, I, I'm not sure if the regional or JP Morgan will have issues with it. Most of the stuff you have with companies now is, is, is cleared on the exchange. So pretty much even, you know, any any hedge you're going to do is going to be on the exchange and clear. Well, I meant no I meant more the bankruptcies. Oh, maybe, but again, I don't think they're going to be. Basically, the loans already outstanding. If yeah, I think you just you're going to have to pay for the cost that two countries can basically put you out of business anytime. So you can go into an investor pitch meeting and show them your pitch and your returns, and you found the greatest well. But there will always be that overhang that if it gets too high or it gets too low. Saudi and Saudis and Russians can get together and, and end your company if they really want. Uh, sure, but, that's a risk. But Brent, wait until oil hits eighty dollars, like in twenty twenty one, and then see how the attitude is. Yeah, right. And then <laughs> be lining up to write checks and get get credit. What's it's, the? It's true. What do you think highest price we see in the next ten years is? You think we'll ever get back one hundred and fifty dollar oil? Or is this proof that the hundred days are over for good? I think, I think we can get hundred dollars by the end of next year. Sorry, sorry Brent, go ahead. Brent, you go first. I said I think there's a chance you could be close to seventy-five to hundred next year, and Brent, um, I, I can easily make a case if we don't have more, uh, you know, if, if COVID doesn't come back and we have to do another quarantine in in July or August. Um, I, I think it's a pretty bullish scenario. I was going to say the exact same thing. $100 oil is possible in 2021. And then can you imagine the, t the conversation with, uh, with Trump and, and the Saudi prince about, well, you said you wanted higher prices. Yeah. Go. <laughs> well, the best part is it's going to be $100 oil. And then all of a sudden the U.S. is going to come out that, oh, hey, by the way, we're going to grow shale production by $2.5 million. Two and a half million you know, a thousand, two and a half million barrels per day next year. And then we're right back where we started, around, around the merry-go-round. Volatility. The, uh, um, that was it. All right, guys, this has been fun. Any, any last you. thoughts? I think we covered yeah. it all. Yeah, I wanted a little <laughs> more argument out of you guys. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we could do that. I'll, we'll flip a coin for who gets to be bearish, who gets to be bullish. We'll do that next yeah, time. Okay. Um, and so listeners, we're going to have each of these guys on at some point on the pod for a more formal backgrounds strategy, what they're doing, but wanted to get their quick thoughts on the, uh, negative pricing today. So thanks so much for joining us guys. It's been fun. We'll, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Stay safe during the quarantine. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. listening to The Derivative. 
Links from this episode will be in the episode description of this channel. Follow us on Twitter at rcmalt and visit our website to read our blog or subscribe to our newsletter at rcmalt.com. If you liked our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. And be sure to leave comments. We'd love to hear from you. 